Hi, and welcome to Connected Conversations for Creatives, a place where creatives like you can learn, grow, and connect. I'm your host, Jennifer Carr. From the pages of your favorite book to the silver screen, storytelling transcends mediums, captivating hearts and minds in their own unique ways. And just as those stories inspire and compel their audiences, those who create the stories have their own inspiring narratives that allow them to bring their imaginations to life on the page or the screen. Today's guest is an award-winning director, writer, cinematographer, and illustrator with a passion for independent film and storytelling. He's worked on a variety of projects in film and television, including his award-winning short film, Spirit, A Martian Story. Most recently, his sci-fi short, Tim Travers and the Time Traveler's Paradox, became his feature-length directorial debut, starring Danny Trejo and Joel McHale. So without further delay, I'd like to welcome to the show, Stimson Sneed. Would it be okay? Thank um, you for that introduction. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time to be here. Um, when when I got the request from your rep, uh, I had to take a moment to really think about it because I have knowledge and experience when it comes to writing, but until recently, my ventures into like the world of filmmaking, they were they were very brief forays, as in I watched a movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and so around the same time, however, an email request had come through from a screenwriter who he had read my first book and he said, I think this would work on TV. And I was like, I don't know. So we, we've been talking for the last couple of months. And then I started doing my own research, which is kind of what I just call another day in the office because everything is research for me. Um, but in this process, it occurred to me that filmmaking and book writing are two sides of the same coin in a lot of ways, because our goal is to take a story that a reader or a watcher um, could only ever get into outside of themselves. And so I sent the email pretty soon after that and was like, I need to meet Stimson. We need to have a conversation because I think there's a table today. So here we are. I, I love it. Uh, and I should stress when you were mentioning that list of awards, it's only ever been for directing. No one's ever awarded me for anything <laughs> but that. That doesn't mean just it's not deserved. <laughs> it's just uh, all they've given you, right? I like to think so, but in the interest of full disclosure. <laughs> well, either way, like I watched um, Spirit, A Martian Story this weekend, and I loved it. Like, congratulations. I mean, best science fiction short. That's a pretty amazing accomplishment. Even if it's one accomplishment, that is a huge deal. So congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was yeah, uh, no. one of my favorite shorts I've ever done. It was adorable. Like I've always, I've always been a little obsessed with space and astronomy and ever wanted to be when I grew up was an astronaut, which clearly things didn't quite work out that way. But um, that, that movie, I could totally see that little short, like inspiring the next little mind to just really dive into space exploration and be like, oh, see, I'm going to be an astronaut and live on Mars. Like, bravo. That, that was always the goal with it because we wanted it to be something that uh, kids specifically would get to see. So we ended up uh, gifting it to the Aldrin, which is a group that puts a lot of educational materials in schools, which to my mind was the best way to make sure the desired audience saw it. I remember the, uh, the gentleman, Stephen Squires, who does the introduction for the film and was also part of the original team uh, of the Real Rovers. What made him agree to do it was when he we showed him the film and apparently his eight-year-old daughter loved it. So it's like, that's apparently what moved the needle with him. And it was just like, yes, target audience. <laughs> Reached and accomplished. That was fantastic. I love it. No, it was so sweet. It's so cute. And so um, I hope everybody will go like watch it and, and just 
and realize, because I think teachers would get a real big kick out of it too, because I know in fifth grade, like this is where my passion for astronomy really kicked off because I think my fifth grade teacher she got like the first grant in the state to get one of those inflatable planetarium domes and so um like it became an obsession for a very long time so you know teachers need resources like that to inspire their little minds because while I might not have ended up an astronaut there will be some kid one day in one of those planetariums or watching spirit that goes that'll be me one day you can be the one who saves the robot at the end <laughs> That's right. That's right. You can put a little spirit on a pedestal and watch her come back to life. No, I love it. It was so great. So, okay. Tell us a little bit about yourself and because I would just rave about the cute little short all day. Tell us about yourself and how you got started in the world of independent film and storytelling. Well, uh, for the record, I'm happy to let the whole conversation be you raving about my films. I <laughs> very much okay with that. Sure. Uh, Independent filmmaking is something I think everybody either comes to or passes through on their way to, if they're lucky, uh, bigger league projects. I mean, independent filmmaking is exactly what the name implies. It's filmmakers making films and they're doing it without the studio involvement, which means you're not at the mercy of waiting for somebody else to give you permission. I could speak for, I've never met a director who didn't want to move up to the bigger leagues, but they always want to move up and still retain that independent spirit. I have been in film my entire adult life. I studied it in college. Uh, you'd be amazed by the way you're talking about how your exposure to film was watching them. That's actually the education of a lot of professionals out there. So uh, I wouldn't knock it. <laughs> All right. I, uh, <laughs> Moved to LA shortly after college, started working at the bottom of the barrel, doing background stuff for many years. And then I started directing, sorry, DPing on many people's other shorts and TV pilots. Then eventually just started directing my own stuff. Although directing was what I had always wanted to do from day one. But for those first couple of years in LA, it was kind of hard to wrangle the reason. So for me, it's been just kind of a steady, all right, I can do this now. Now I can do this, now I can do this, now I can do this. And if I get the folks at Disney or Warner Brothers to watch one of my films, hopefully I'll do that. <laughs> that sounds like a lot like um, being a self-published author, which is, that's where I am. I decided not to go the traditional route because there is a lot more control to be had in it. Um, but I would never say that if somebody paid attention close enough and was like, We'd really like to take that on and take some of that, you know, marketing off your plate or some of the, you know, financial obligation. I'd be like, here you go, silver platter. I'll offer it right up. Totally understand. My goal is to, if I can get famous enough, to have publishers come to me and then have other people ghostwrite the work, so I don't actually have to do anything. <laughs> yeah, I can. I can. That's called that. delegation. So, I like it, and that is important for good leadership. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I delegate. Right? the story, the writing, the editing, basically everything about the author, the uh, credit. Delegate everything but the credit. <laughs> hey, I can get on board with that, I, except I do, I do love writing the story, but the cover design I could do without, the social media I could do without, the, you know, advertising I could do without. So yeah, as soon as I can, I'm delegating the heck out of some of that stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So tell us about some of the early influences and inspirations that just kind of shaped your creative style as a filmmaker. For me, it was all really low budget kind of grindhousey sort of stuff. Like the, uh, the, the seed of all of my creative endeavors is the British TV series Red Dwarf, which is a show that has zero budget, zero anything going for it, except a good script and a good cast. 
And it manages, in spite of all of the problems, to be a show that's both funny and genuinely heartfelt when it wants to be. And for as long as I can remember, I've always been into that kind of uphill battle storytelling, where it's people working within very specific limited constraints, but finding a way to elevate what they have into something meaningful and profound and entertaining. One of the reasons I have a problem with a lot of these sort of mega blockbusters out there is these are groups that have seemingly unlimited money, and they use that unlimited money to make things that feel more generic than certain animated YouTube series that I've watched will do a better job of engaging me with their little uh, and and so clearly, like there there needs to be a strong message or a theme or something in the work that you do to make it meaningful to you. I wouldn't call it a message or a theme to me. And I think one of the reasons I've always been drawn to sci-fi more than other genres is I tend to start with an interesting idea. Here is an idea I find interesting that I want to explore. I tend to stay away from more messagey stuff as a general rule of thumb because message means ideologies, which means kind of guiding that. Whereas I like with sci-fi, it's much more about presenting a scenario, filling it with compelling characters who have their own ideology, and then kind of just letting them bump into each other and letting the pieces fall where they may. Uh, I gen I do really prefer work that lets the audience make its own determination about the values of a given narrative. I like that. Uh, that's kind of how I am with reading. I'm like, you go into books and movies to escape reality. There are plenty of messages and agendas being pushed in reality. So let's escape that. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not nothing against other storytellers that do it. I think it can be done extremely well. But for my... I don't know, maybe I'm just so wishy-washy in my own day-to-day -day politics. I have no desire to be preaching my wishy-washiness. <laughs> we get enough of that, too, on a daily basis, so it's okay. It's all good. <laughs> it, it's very challenging to be an extreme moderate. <laughs> <laughs> I can, yes, yes, yes. So yeah. as an author, I have to ask, are are you, were you ever a big, no, were you gotta get your inspiration from somewhere. Okay, okay. Uh, my library, and I have an entire room, is my library. Most people would call it a guest room, but I have a lot of actor friends, and I want to send a really clear message to my actor friends, which is, <laughs> you can't live here. <laughs> so I don't even put a guest bed in there. That is my library. Uh, last I count, it's just shy of 2,000 books strong. So uh, Favorite one in the library? Oh, God. Who's your favorite pet? <laughs> um... That's a good question. You're not, yeah, you're not supposed to have you're not supposed to have an answer to that. If I were to pick a book series that I'm particularly into right now, it's the collected works of Neil Stevenson, mm -hmm. just because of how close to the wall weird his sci-fi gets. Yeah, prior to Neil Stevenson, I was munching my way through all of Becky Chamber's work, and if you're thinking of sci-fi, her writing is like a big warm hug. Oh, I like that. Like a warm chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> exactly. But in space, which makes it better because almost Nothing everything is better in space. <laughs> like I grew up, my dad was like Star Trek, the original series from the very beginning. And then, um, and we liked Star Wars, but we were definitely Star Trek, Stargate, you name it. That was, that was our every oh, night through and through. Oh, absolutely. Live long and prosper. But yeah, so, you know, space and space travel and aliens have always been a part of hey, my, life. my hot take deep space nine is the best one 
I think that's actually a fairly um, common opinion among the true fans, but yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. love Deep Space Nine all the way. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. This conversation could go on forever in so many ways, just not even talking about <laughs> being a creative person. Yeah. Well, I want more audiobooks narrated by the actor who plays Cisco. Okay. <laughs> like just let that just let that buttery voice carve through any him reading Pride and Prejudice in audiobook form. How do we make this happen? I need uh we need to talk to somebody. <laughs> Let's make it Honestly, out. it's probably pretty straightforward. Pride and Prejudice is public domain right now. It'd just be a matter of calling up his agent. No, it's actually <laughs> you got that number yes, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I mean to, to all the folks out there listening who want to develop films and work with known talent. So you all know, you don't have to stalk people. Like all of these people have agents. That information is publicly available. So it's like, if there's ever been a celebrity you've wanted to work with and you feel like you can afford them, it's literally just a matter of reaching out to the agent. It's, it is shamelessly straightforward. I've always had a lot of friends asking, how'd you get this actor to work with you on this? And it's like, I called their agent and we negotiated a contract. Like it's, it was very untraumatic. <laughs> And and that is that is so interesting. You know, we 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 see what happens on the screen, and we see the lifestyle on the screen and on the page. You know, we don't see the people anymore, which is kind of sad. Um, you know, that sometimes people get kind of hidden away. But you're like, no, literally, they're a phone call away. I mean, they all have Twitter accounts. It's it's not yeah. that hard. Just hmm. Yeah. Don't use the Twitter account though. That means you come up with You gotta. This is true. You reach out to someone. Go to the formal channels. That's how you show you're a professional. Right there. Yeah. Unless you are crazy in that case. Well, and yeah, in that case, all the crazies, please keep to Twitter or X or Threads because it's a very good filtering system. That's right. <laughs> exactly. I love it. Oh my gosh. Okay. So thinking about being a creative minded person um, and having a career in the creative arts, which is not a place that I ever really thought that I would personally be. It's just in the last two years that I really um, started pouring into it because before that I was a marriage and family counselor, which is not creative at all. Um, <laughs> but I mean, sometimes you have to be creative, was, but that's I was going to say, I feel like it could be. I mean, <laughs> sometimes you have creative solutions for some pretty big problems and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. It is what it is. Um, <laughs> hopefully they work. But being a creative person with a creative career, um, you, I know for me, I have a creative process that I have to go through to my creative works. Do you have a specific creative process? Like when it came to spirit, like where did that idea come from? And and like, what was your process getting it to well, the, the process? The process with film is multi-faceted because it's such a big team to do anything. The first step, the idea, that's the easy part because that's I don't sit down and say, all right, today I'm going to come up with seven ideas and this and this number will be good. It's you just go about living your life until something happens that grabs your imagination. Mm -hmm. In the case of Spirit, the wonderful webcomic XKCD, when the Spirit Rover died, put out a one page comic about the Spirit Rover that I found incredibly moving. And because the author uh, releases all of his work into the public domain, I thought it would be fun to adapt it. and. The original comic was only a page, whereas mine became a, a 12 and a half minute piece, much more information, but it all germinated from that one page joke because it made me sad, but like good sad. 
it gave me happy. And I wanted to see that in film form. And I was pretty confident the more I started looking into it, that it was something I could pull off. So that's the easy part. Like the, ooh, I want to do a thing because I'm excited to do the thing. Then the method starts and that's writing. For me, I tend to cloister myself. I have really bad self-discipline as I have very, I have a great deal of trouble writing in my own home. So I'm a go to a hotel, go on a road trip, go to an Airbnb and lock myself in for however many days are required until I walk out with a working, which with what I usually call the vomit draft. Because it's terrible, I, it's just vomiting on a page. With a short, that's pretty straightforward. And those will usually come together within a couple of days uh, from writing to being ready to stamp it and say, let's go to the next phase, let's figure out how to do it. Then you get into pre-production and now it stops being a singular because once you get into pre-development, uh, that means you got to hire producers. In some cases, you hire an entire studio, depending on the scale of it. At that point, it's just really about the scale of the project. If it's a small enough, I'm getting ready to do another short uh, later this summer that I really only decided to do a few days ago when I was talking to a friend of mine who I think I'm just going to have step in and produce it himself because I've been wanting to work with him for a while. And it's a nice low-key little maybe two, three-day shoot, tiny crew that we can make nice and intimate. So the script of that one hasn't even been written yet, but the process there was knowing I wanted to work with this guy. And I had this idea for something kind of germinating in the back of my head. Plus, I've seen enough of his other work that I know what kind of incredibly tight budgets he can work with. So for me, it's like, ooh, okay, this is something fun that I could do for the next couple of months because the feature is not going to be ready until spring of next year. So I got to keep myself occupied creatively in the meantime. I mean, there's only so much Legend of Zelda a man can do in a year. So <laughs> that's understandable. Um, Sorry, was that an incredibly overcomplicated answer to your question? No, it was good. That. It was good. <laughs> I mean, it is a, it is a process whether, you know, writing a book yeah your idea just pops into your head I have like notes after note after note after note in my phone of okay so when you finish this process you know you're going to start on this next story and then next thing you know another story has popped into your head and so sometimes you just kind of have to write it down and put it on the back burner um, but then when you get into that's, the story well, I was gonna say that's where I call it the vomit draft like I like yes. revising and editing my that is my favorite part of the writing process is going back in taking the garbage <laughs> and making it legible to me the hardest part is that first one like I I will freely admit when I'm writing in non-screenplay format I will use dictation apps and just dictate verbally a chapter at a time even though it's in the reading of it it's incomprehensible to almost anyone but me because just getting that first form of it out. So that's half the reason I'll be at an Airbnb is so that anybody walking by will just hear, who is that madman talking to himself? <laughs> oh, see, I wish I could do that. I wish that I could just like vomit that first draft out, but I am so bad about self-editing. Now, you know, my editor appreciates it in the end, but at the same time, I'm like, you know, I, I can't, I self-edit so badly. So for me, a creative process is a little more restrictive because I will get started on it. And then I'm like, no, I can't do that. I have to wait. I have to I have to fix that before I can do the next thing. And so my creative process might be a little more stunted than yours. And so that makes me a little jealous that there are people who can just put it out there. Well, it, well, to me, because the real creative for me in the writing phase is in all that editing and revising. And what will happen, because I also pathologically edit and revise, I'll try to write the first chapter of something. But every time I try to get to chapter two, I'll go back and revise chapter one. By the time I get to chapter nine, chapter nine is unlegible, whereas chapter one has been rewritten a dozen times. It, 
it front loads the quality. That's why. So for first drafts, I actually have a rule that I'm not allowed to edit until the first draft is done, no matter how nice. bad it is, just to ensure the whole thing is there. That's amazing. And, and there are some people, you know, then I'm kind of in the middle of with writing books, like there are people who literally plot the whole thing and outline it before they start writing. And I'm like, I can't do that. Now I cannot do that. I will just start writing whatever pops into my, because it plays like a, a movie in my head when I'm writing. And so I write what I see onto the page, but the people who are like, no, I know exactly like every chapter, what it's going to look like. And I'm like, how, how does that even happen? That makes sense. That makes sense. I'm, I'm kind of in that boat. So what I do for screenplay, so not for uh, short fiction, but if I'm being mm -hmm. a screenplay, I do, uh, scripts have what's called a treatment. A uh, treatment is usually just an incredibly detailed outline. So say you have a 110 page script, treatment could be 15 to 30 pages. So it is not a short document. Uh, and it outlines the whole plot, what characters are doing, but it just doesn't get as far as dialogue or actually scene descriptions. So what I like to do is actually write my treatment in the screenplay writings format. And then I go through once I have that outline and just start fleshing it out until a paragraph turns into an actual scene. And it lets me keep jumping around when I come across it. It's like, oh, crap, I got to make sure that happens in chap in uh, scene four. All right, go back to scene four, add that there. Ooh, this would be fun to add to scene three. It lets me go very non-chronologically. So I take a sort of small but letting it expand out approach, at least in my writing phase. Now that doesn't apply to shorts at all because shorts are too short. <laughs> right. <laughs> for it. Yeah, the, the, the script I'm going to do with my friend later this summer, that I mean, that's going to be five, maybe seven pages. And it's so light on dialogue, it may actually come in a few pages under its actual runtime. So the runtime of the film might be seven minutes, but the script might be four pages because there's very little dialogue. That's wild. How long does it take you to produce that many pages of a script? Like till to the final edit? Final edit? Ah, less than a week for something like nice. that. So I've, I'll, I've, I'll have the first draft done uh, in the first seating of it. Like I will sit down, knock out the first draft because this is one where I don't even need to outline it because it's functionally one scene. So it's like, I already know what I want to have happen in that scene. There's nothing to do but write it. <laughs> So. Okay, so that takes about a week. And then how long will it take to film something that's short? Yo, you could do that in a day, easy. Uh, but it depends on how you want to film a thing. So with the Tim Travers feature, for example, that uh, was a, God help me, 17-day shoot for a almost 100-page script. For context, three to five pages a day is considered a breakneck pace for a film shoot. Typically, two and a half to three pages is more leisurely. So you want 30 or more days. To do any film in under 20 days, let alone 17, is ridiculous. To do a film like Tim Travers, which is a time travel story, so every so the main character, actor uh, Samuel Dunning, plays a dozen versions of himself in the same, not even in the same scenes, in the same shots together. So it's split screen. But what that means from a practical standpoint is you don't get to film the shot. You then have to film the shot for however many times he is in it. So a shot that would normally take an hour and a half can take three hours of film time to do. So it was a breakneck pace. And we had to build our whole shoot to make this plausible, knowing that every scene you have functionally maybe three setups. So you've got to make every setup a beauty shot because you've got to make it count when you get to the edit because you're going to have very little wiggle room once you get to the edit. Something like Spirit, for example, which you watch because the main character is entirely computer generated, 
all that is shooting, it's called plates. And plates are backdrops that don't have actors in it. So what we did is we went out to Death Valley because it was the closest approximation of Mars we could find. And we would set up the camera, lock it down, and we would film an actor walking through, mimicking all the performances the robot's gonna do. And then we'd film it a second time without the actor so that now the animators have that reference footage. So everything you saw the robot spirit do, there's a human woman who's exactly 5'1", which is the same height as the rover. So her real life eyes are exactly level with the little robot eyes, who is out there walking the whole path that you see in every scene of that film. But it depends on your need. We could film it in one day if we felt like it. Seven pages is a lot for one day. But, you know, so, but if it's only one day, you can afford to push everybody into overtime on the logic that, hey, we're just going to knock it out. We're not going to do that because the subject matter of the film is very dark. It deals with a lot of body horror and dehumanization, but it doesn't do it through gore special effects. It does it in style and tone. And that's a very delicate, difficult thing to pull off. So we're going to give ourselves a minimum of a three to four day shoot, knowing that we're only knocking out like maybe a page and a half to two pages a day in the course of a 12 hour day so that we have the time to really exhaustively milk every single camera composition in it to get the most detail. We won't have inserts. Every shot will be a team working on it. Now to make that affordable, what we'll do is probably have an extremely tiny crew. I'm sure I'll end up being my own, I'll end up being like one of my own PAs. <laughs> I will be my own personal assistant, which is right. good because if I'm my own assistant, I'm allowed to hit him, which I can't do on union sets. <laughs> That's true. That is true. You you have the final say and they have no choice but to listen. Exactly. So, but it, it really varies from project to project. Some friends of mine, uh, they needed to knock out 12 pages uh, in a single day for an episode of a web series they were doing. And what they did is they did the entire episode, <clears throat> with my help, as one continuous shot. So the camera never cuts because it all takes place in one party. But the advantage of that is it forced them, in spite of the page length, to do all the prepping for every single part of that. So once they did it, eight takes and they were done. So that shoot day was a 12-hour day, but 10 of those hours was spent just prepping for the one shot. And then when they did it, it was just a matter of doing it till you get it right. But it let them knock out what should have taken four days of filming in a day. That sounds exhausting. It was. Yeah, bet. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, I, I like I like my little keyboard and my screen and my imagination. I don't, I don't, mm -mm. that's a long time to be with people too. And I'm I'm very much so an introvert. And so you clearly have to be an extroverted people loving person to do exactly what you do. <laughs> well, I kind of love it because it puts all the pressure on the actors because when you're doing the entire thing in one shot, every actor can't screw up. Because imagine that you're at the ear, you have the second to last line in a 12 minute scene and you flub the line, knowing they now mm. have to redo all the whole thing from the top because of you. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> All right, so warning in advance for your sensor bar, because you had mentioned to watch language. I did another version of this years ago, and in eight takes, eight takes, sorry, no, this was 10 takes. This was for college. Eight takes was the recent one. We only ever lost a single line to a screw-up, and it was the second to last line from the main actor. Oh, so is she your boyfriend? 
he just started cussing up a storm because the oh, no. moment he said it, the moment the sentence came out wrong, you saw it on his face. Oh, it's delightful. Yeah, he had nightmares for months about that. <laughs> I don't know, the rest, no, he had nightmares about the rest of us coming for him. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that job would not be for me. Thank you, no. Um, but I would say to, to circle back to the original point, the method on set, it really just depends on what you're doing and your style. There, there isn't a wrong way to make a movie. Well, there is, but it's, if the movie is bad, then you did it the wrong way. <laughs> but there is no sense. right or wrong way in principle. For how you do it and part of being a good artist not just a director but costume makeup actors is recognizing what are the needs of this given story and how do i set up our production to benefit those needs first and foremost and a lot of it yeah, honestly can... is just being humble like if you're working with a really experienced crew suck it up do what they tell you <laughs> right sometimes experience does you know trump the, the yeah. new guy with the fresh ideas. I totally respect that. Um, and, and I think if you focus on the story, you know, it's really hard to go wrong. If you, if you just keep the story at the forefront, I realize that there's a lot of technical that goes into making a movie, but if you're like, you know what, this is for the sake of the story, um, you'll probably end up with a better product in the end, I would think. Oh, absolutely. And it allows everybody to have a certain flexibility as things go forward like even in just the editing phase of the feature we're on I got to work with a great editor Jason McKee and as we were doing the edit on it there were certain things where we'd have to correct for a mistake just some random tiny thing that happened on set happens at every film nothing big but what we would do is whenever we, were, we had to make a change is find a change that actually made the story world more interesting like, all right, if I have to sh shoot to this angle, which is not the angle I wanted to use, but I've got to be in this angle because I have to, what additional element can we give this that motivates that? What makes this shot now better? That makes sense. Um, so you mentioned your, you know, your your newest project, um, Tim Travers and the Time Traveler's Paradox. Tell us where that started and how it ended up as a full length film. Oh, this is embarrassing. So oh, no. going back to how <laughs> ideas can come from a lot of places, sometimes ideas can come from extremely petty places. Oh no. I was at a film festival that was screening the spirit film and by Dumlock, the screening block I watched, which included a feature, uh, had multiple time travel stories. And they were all using stories where time travel was a metaphor for the human condition. They were these beautifully filmed, thought-provoking, character studies and I really really hated them I just hated them because you you could feel the hand of the author in every action of it where you would have a character this is a real scene in one of these films talking about after they've discovered time travel how they're going to work on this in the afternoon with their friends after they get back from class and I'm going idiot you have time travel you are god you have more money than Elon Musk this is not how a sane human being behaves this is how a human being who needs to go to class because the writer needs them to go to class behaves this is it, it drove me up the bloody wall and I have a lot of friends who dabbled in particle physics. I've got to work at a little bit in education. Time travel is completely impossible. But the reasons it's impossible are actually really fascinating. 
there's actual science in theory and mathematics behind it. All these mathematics are always broken by the time traveler's paradox, but it is a legitimately interesting thing to study as more than just a magic door metaphor for the human condition. And so I wrote the short Tim Travers very drunk in one night. Uh, it was virtually unreadable that outlined the entire plot of it because I wanted to do a story in which I had a character who would be a good scientist, where no matter what plot thing would happen, his reaction would always be, okay, how do I understand this better? He would have no character growth. He would be objectively a badly written character. And the way I would get around this is by making the character such an obnoxiously awful human being that he would be wildly entertaining to watch. And all of his sort of inhuman actions would be motivated by that. And the short, when we took at the festivals, did gangbusters. The lead actor, Samuel Dunning, won awards at multiple film festivals, including Nevermore Film Festival and uh, Film Quest for his performance in it because he was great. And then when it came time to do a feature, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I got put into a weird position where I realized I had to shoot some feature in about three months. And the Tim Travers short was as close to a market testing as I was ever gonna be. And so I called up Sam, we kind of talked about if we were to make this into a feature, what would we wanna see the arc for this character? Because ironically, he's gotta have an arc if you're going to spend nearly two hours with the character. And in a hilarious twist of fate, there is a lot of now using time travel as a metaphor for the human condition. So it's all come back full circle on me. <laughs> but I have tried to keep the seeds of what inspired that original short, love of actual science, love of science for science's sake, and the idea of an awful human being being our main character, but also being a compelling main character, and hopefully one where we can see a lot of ourselves in his awfulness. So that's how Tim Travers came about. But it really was just born of me being slightly drunk, watching some other people's time travel movies and going, eh, I can do this better. <laughs> I love that. No, that's fantastic because there really is nothing new under the sun. But if you can take something and just make it better, then in my opinion, or go make for it, it your own thing. Yes. Yeah, making it your own story. What is the what are the things in a story like this that appeal to you? So like the running joke in the Tim Travers short is he always goes back in time one minute, kills his younger self to see if he can create a paradox. And no paradox ever arrives, which mathematically and scientifically it should. And getting into the questions of it gives me the excuse in the film to explore the real science by deliberately breaking the science, but having the character understand it it gives me an excuse as a filmmaker to explore the actual theories that are interesting. Now, where we decided to change this th theme in the film, because he is always killing himself, I realized that in a very literal sense, this is a character who is engaging in constant self-harm. I mean, the metaphor is a little on the nose, and so the story we decided for the feature would be about someone who, a narcissist who, when you get right down to it, genuinely despises themselves to the point mm -hmm. of self-harm, although he would never admit that to himself, learning to love himself. Hmm. And because it's a time travel story where you can have more than one Tim in a room, when I say he learns to love himself, I mean it fairly literally. <laughs> <laughs> and take from that what you will. <laughs> yes, yes. So Got that, it. <laughs> if I could put that on every single tagline for the feature, I will. <laughs> 
That's hilarious. Um, so has, has it been a good, was it a good experience? Is it something that made you go, yes, I will absolutely always do this the rest of my life. Or was it something that made you go, that was a lot of work. I don't know. This might be like a dabble in it situation. It was the defining experience of my adult life that I have looked forward to. I was actually really dreading it going in because I am mid to late thirties right now. It takes a sort of, it takes a long time to get to this point in your career that you can find the literal millions of dollars required to do something like this. And my great fear going into it was now that I'm finally here, now that I'm finally doing this, what if I hate it? Mm -hmm. I've had some shorts that I really hate that were really miserable to film. And I've had others that I love. So I generally was not sure. And I can confidently say that this was the most labor intensive, challenging thing I have done in my adult life to the point where I think I slept for the better part of two and a half weeks after we wrapped. I was basically non-functional for a fortnight and still kind of it's dealing with scars. And all I could think to myself at the end of that fortnight was, I want to do another one like just as soon as humanly possible. I would have nights where I would come home from the set that were so exhausted. I would go to the little brewery across the street from the apartment that I was living in during the shoot because we did not shoot in LA. This was up in Washington state. So I had a whole second address for the duration of production. I would walk into the brewery, order a beer, sit there with this expression <laughs> and just staring at a dot on the wall. Like just, it was like being a zombie. And all I could think about afterwards is how badly I want to do another one. So yes, I am thrilled by it, but it was also the most challenging, exhausting thing in my life. And one of the big differences between a short and a feature, like a short, you'll get into overtime. It's like, oh man, I'm, I'm gonna, do we have the money? To, this is going to cost us what, an extra 300 bucks to keep us here for an hour? Jeez. Oh God. You get into the feature. All right. So we're going to have to go an hour over. What's that going to be? About $15,000. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> <laughs> faster faster let's go <laughs> all right sam get it on this take please <laughs> please make it perfect just, you know what let's just edit it let's edit the script this is what it's supposed to be it looks great let's go guys well okay. and there's so much stuff where you have to make new decisions entirely fly so we were shooting outside at this warehouse complex uh that had so much snow on it we had spent days beforehand picking out where each of the locations we were going to use it's like all right we're going to film this scene with the two leads here we'll do a 20 minute walk uh maybe 300 feet to this location here like we've really carefully planned out our path to sort of maximize time and efficiency and we're shooting up there with Sam Dunning, uh, reprising his role, and also Felicia Day, starring opposite of him. And we've done all this work to pick our locations, and the uh, UPM comes over to go, hey, minor snag, and this is day of, there's so much snow, and there's melt off today, so we're getting avalanches that could kill a person. And four of the locations we picked out are in the avalanche zone, so we're going to have to pick a new locations now. <laughs> Like, cause we got it to stay on schedule. We got to do the company move in about 20 minutes. So you, that thing we took a whole day carefully doing a week ago. Yeah, do it. I need you to do it again, but you get like 20 minutes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, oh yeah. That's wild. So you clearly face challenges um, in, in these situations, but they, they also, they seem to motivate and spur you forward and, and kind of light a fire under you that says, I could do this every day. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that is the joy of filmmaking. I think what makes filmmaking in the doing of it 
so distinct from every other art form, including theater, is it's never the same twice. The actual day-to-day -day job, person does thing, point camera at person as they do a thing. That never changes. But the details of what you're doing day-to-day -day is constantly changing. I can think of no other artistic job that creates so much minute-to-minute -minute variety in the act of doing it. That's never the same twice. And a lot of it is just dealing with problems as they come. We had a scene with Danny Trejo. It was one of the first scenes we filmed with him. And the weather was so bad, it was probably negative three degrees. And we were shooting outside. And I remember having this moment where my brain goes, oh God, I can see the Wikipedia article now. Beloved character actor Danny Trejo dies on Idiot's first feature. <laughs> I'm going to go down as the guy who killed Danny Trejo. I remember talking to Danny during, and Danny was a wonderful sport to work with, but he remembered just being like, yeah, this is, I think, the coldest I have ever been in my life. And he still came to work, so it must not have been that bad. Oh, yeah. But I mean, we had, we were pointing like four, the man's in his early 80s. We had like four external gas heaters pointing at him because we were all just absolutely terrified of him for, for <laughs> killing him. The national treasure you best protect at all costs. <laughs> exactly. It's like Bless. no better way to make everybody hate you than kill Danny Trejo. Everybody loves Danny Trejo. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter how much you love doing the job. You lose Danny and it's the end. Like you're, you're just yeah, it's like, sorry. I'm done. That's, I will, I, you know, you don't get past kill Danny Trejo on your CV. <laughs> oh yeah. There's, there's a hard stop at that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. So it seems like you really, you're, you're real big into sci-fi, but is there a particular genre that you haven't explored yet that you might want to in the future? I've been dabbling with one that I love. I love dark children's stories. I've actually done it already because Spirit is a children's story. Mm -hmm. But I like, I go to the 1980s Don Bluth School of Filmmaking for kids that says, if you don't make the kid cry at some point, you're not doing your job right. <laughs> I think our kids' entertainment has gotten way too wishy-washy. Because I am a firm believer that kids can handle so much more than we let them. We shouldn't be able to traumatize kids. And so right. much of what we think about in modern storytelling is actually inflicting trauma on the audience. You're trying to gross out and make them fill with despair. But kids can handle scary. And it's worth thinking about some of our favorite films from our childhoods, our monster squads, our goonies, even Hocus Pocus, Ernest Scared Stupid. To an eight and nine-year-old, a lot of these films are unironically scary but they're not scary in a traumatizing way. So I'd like to do more kind of dealing with kids' horror and adventure, but stuff where the stakes are real, that lets the kid characters have real emotions, and like Spirit, really can try to get, if I could try to get kids to cry at least once <laughs> before the happy ending. I gave a happy ending at the end of Spirit, even though That's I true. Did and definitely get a few kids to cry. Right. I mean, there was definitely a heart-wrenching moment there where you were just kind of like, oh, this is, I was kind of mad, you know, this is, this is how it ends really, but there was redemption well, in, in the end. So I, I appreciate in that. In real life, that's how it ends. But, you know, I decided to give a little bit more uh, creative ending. <laughs> right. Which was, it was, it was superb. It was good. Uh, I'm so one of the guys more... in the spacesuit, by the way. <laughs> oh, are you? That's fun. <laughs> oh yeah. One of the other many things about doing small films, especially when you're doing shorts as opposed to features, is a lot of the time you kind of want to just let yourself have fun. So we rented our spacesuits from Global Effects in LA, and they have basically all the spacesuits from every movie you've seen in the last 20 years, including the armored spacesuits from Firefly. And I got to admit, because I love that show, 
I was twisting myself into logical nuts, trying to find a justification to have an armored spacesuit in spirit. Ultimately, I could not come up with one and we went with the more realistic futuristic design, but I really wanted that armored <laughs> spacesuit. That would have been amazing. <laughs> oh God, I, and I, I, I jumped through so many hoops trying to figure out a way for it to make sense. And, and only a, like a select few, if you will, would have recognized it, but it would have been worth it. Absolutely. And I, I would have had to do some redecorating it to make it not too familiar. Sure. So. Absolutely. No, that's hilarious. So kids, so, you know, grim fairy tales, those are pretty dark, um, bringing those to life on the screen. Mm. Well, I always like the idea of, I remember back in the 90s when I was a kid, there was an entire kids film was not a genre. It was the name of multiple genres because you had mm -hmm. kids horror like Hocus Pocus. You had kids adventure like Goonies. You had kids uh, dramas like your Free Willies or your Secret Gardens. These were unambiguously kids films meant for kids, but they were also serious films. And particularly the kids drama is something you really don't see a lot of anymore. Or the closest you'll get is something like Stranger Things, which is about kids, but it's not for kids. Mm -hmm which I stand by as a really important distinction. Mm -hmm. Or at least oh, I you're hope you're absolutely it's... right. No, I hope, yeah, I, I think there's definitely should be a line um, where we're very particular because kids are very, <clears throat> they're sponges and everything they mm -hmm. see, you know, that kind of sticks. So yeah, no, I'm with you. There should definitely be a line. But I do think we need to see a return of more kids, dramas, horrors, sci-fi, all of it. Because right now we it. have and sort of this one size fits all with kids stuff and it kind of drives me nuts. Oh, definitely. And look at look at the resilience of the generation that grew up on those movies. You know, there's a big difference in, in that resilience level because, you know, even even moving into like the, the mid to maybe maybe just mid 90s, really looking at those movies that for, that were for kids. Um, as about when it started to kind of taper off and it became, well, they're just so sensitive. And then, well, it's like, <laughs> it's like that. You need to be considerate of not traumatizing a kid, but kids are not sensitive. If anything, they're eager for it. They want stuff that makes them feel things. Kids want to feel as an adult and a storyteller, it's our responsibility to do it in a safe context. But frankly, I think we need to make children cry more but for the right reasons, crying because a story moved them, not because something in their real life happened. But gosh darn it, children need to be made to cry more. It's good for them. It was good enough for me, I tell you what. <laughs> and that's I'm one of the you. values of entertainment though. That is one of the great moral values of entertainment is it does create a safe space, not just for kids. Mm -hmm. I'll admit in some of the darkest chapters of my life where I was sucking it up every day just to get through the day, it was a release to watch something that would force me to cry because it gave me the distance from the disasters that were happening in my own life. It gave me a place where I could process it and not be haunted by it the way I would by the stuff I was coping with. There is real value in allowing ourselves to feel things and art can often provide the safe space. It's one of the reasons I stand by action films actually have a moral value to them. It is a release for all that pent up aggression that is a healthy release. I like that. Yeah, no, I agree. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like the revenge story. I stand by the revenge narrative will never go away for the simple reason that every single day, any healthy, mentally healthy human being is actively choosing not to take vengeance over some petty gripe. 
we're being an adult. That said, boy, is it satisfying to occasionally just watch that revenge film. <laughs> there is a health and, and you know, to it. There is, and that is the goal of the storyteller is that when I when I sit down with a book, it's it's a little harder for me with with the tv for some reason like a screen doesn't translate the same way but for me with a book I need to be able to live vicariously through the character that I'm reading in some form or fashion I need to be able to put myself in that character's shoes to what just to escape the reality so I'm not going to sit down and read a book about a 40 year old mom who has a teenager because that's my reality like I'm not going to do that so I want to get lost in the fantasy of whatever is on the page or on the screen um so yeah sometimes you just need to especially if there's a need for revenge, you just need to put yourself in those shoes vicariously. But it, it brings it. a health to it. It's one of the reasons I will always defend the art of storytelling, even schlock. There is a place for schlock. There is a place for horror. Uh, just like with action, I think one of the reasons so many people like horror is it's nice to be scared in an environment that you're not actually at risk or harm. There is so much actual frightening in life that we're feeding a biological need because we're all programmed to be out on the savanna checking over our shoulders every time there's a crack in the bushes. This gives us an outlet for that without actually being in danger. And sometimes it can be like an exposure therapy, a way to face things. That's that what I was about to say. <laughs> yeah, I'll admit there are certain things that don't scare, like ghosts don't scare me. I don't believe in ghosts. Now, something like open water, being lost at sea, trying not to drown, that's among my worst nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was literally going to say that it is, it is a form of exposure therapy the more you're exposed to it. And, you know, you don't want to lose your your ability to be afraid but to be afraid in a safe atmosphere and to be able to process those feelings how will I respond to this situation if it was real you know the, there's some definite I like it I like the way we're circling back to to my world of expertise here <laughs> exactly oh yeah because you did family therapy <laughs> mm -hmm. that, that was me that's my jam <laughs> okay thinking about everything we've talked about and just your experiences in the world of <clears throat> creating what advice would you give to aspiring writers, filmmakers, creatives who are maybe passionate about storytelling, but they're hesitant to pursue it? Well, put bluntly, I'm not a successful writer, so I'm not sure what advice to aspiring writers I could give with value. Uh, I would say this, though. Figure out what works for you. One of the things that has always been a pet peeve of mine, and this isn't just true of writers, this is actors, directors, is you will frequently find people, charlatans, who want to tell you, here is the right method to do this. This is the right way to accomplish it. And it's usually whatever way they're selling. The right way is whichever way works. So if you need to lock yourself in a motel for a couple of days, do that. If you're one of the, where you do it all in one sitting, that's fine. If you're that type of writer who's very structured and needs to, all right, first thing of the morning, 6 a.m., Stephen King style, I got to write for three hours, but that's my work day. And I get the rest of the day off because I pumped it all in the first three hours. If that's actually working, that's great. Uh, ben Croshaw, a YouTuber and novelist who I quite like, he has a simple rule that no matter what, he just writes a page a day of a given book, because as he pointed out, if you do this, at the end of a year, you're going to have a 365-page novel. And writing one page a day is actually a fairly easy thing to commit to. So I would say just engage in some self-study. Learn what works for you and really develop an allergy to the methods that tell you here's what you have to do. Whatever way works. 
that's the right way to write. Um, as, but that I think is fairly general to a lot of creatives. For filmmaking, the biggest piece of advice I would give to aspiring filmmakers, particularly on the independent scene, and I've actually been giving this on a couple different podcasts lately, so I'm gonna keep beating this dead horse. Treat your pro bono as money. You're going to do free work for your friends because they're going to do free work for you. That is the nature of cutting your teeth. That's how you find your skill set. That's how you find the community of people who are going to support you and vice versa. But you treat it like money because a lot of filmmakers will fall into the trap where you will put up time again and again without pay to help someone. But when it's time for them to help you, they are not there. That is the equivalent of someone who owes you money not ponying up mm. because you gave them your time. So learn how to hold others accountable and also yourself accountable. If someone did free work for you, you get your butt over to that set regardless of whether or not you're being paid. So hold folks accountable and remember that even if nobody's paying you, your time has value. Treat it that way. Bravo. That's perfect. Like that is... Yes. And I think all of that can apply to just about any creative um, career or, or path that someone chooses to take, because we're not, we're not mats that you can just walk all over. So yeah, I, your time is, is money and it's got a value. And I think it's important to remember, because especially when you're starting out in any creative field, the message you're going to get over and over and over again is that your time does not have value you are lucky to be here, not the other way around. Mm. And that is demonstrably wrong. Unless the person saying that to you is Steven Spielberg or Martin Scorsese or an actual A-list filmmaker letting you show up on their set. Okay, in that extremely unlikely scenario, yeah, your time does not have value. But at the other 99.9% .9 of real life, your time does and you need to treat it that way. 100%. And it's also just a good yes. litmus test because the folks who don't think your time has value, they're not the folks you want to work with. Oof, oof. Yes, yeah. we may have to say that a little louder for those in the back who may not be listening. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Because you That is good. Uh, the other thing, uh, just to use myself as an example there, mm -hmm. there is a day and night shift in my own career that happened when I reached that conclusion. It was in my early 30s and I had done a lot of work, but I was mostly still working as a DP on other people's projects. I was not getting to do the work I wanted to do. And then during the midst of a family tragedy, I had to double, I had to really put a much higher uh, price on my own time simply because my own time suddenly became so much more limited. And I ended up accomplishing more in two years than I had in the previous 10, not because I was putting out more work, but because I was just saying no more. Mm. No is a powerful word. And it's a one sentence. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm, end of, yes. And that is a hard, that is a very hard word for some of us, um, you know, because we do, we tend to, to say, but what if this is my last opportunity? You know, well, hello, opportunities happen when you make them happen a lot of times. And so. Mm. Absolutely. Now with film, it's a tricky one because it's not a matter of last opportunity. There's no such thing as a last opportunity, but there are rare opportunities. It is not mm -hmm. unreasonable to say this opportunity right here, I may not get for another five years. And that's a lot of your life and your creative time gone. There are real ways to fail in this industry and the overwhelming majority of people 
who are hardworking and talented still do because it's you are more likely the hard truth is you're more likely to fail than not by a pretty wide margin so it is a real concern but part of it means you got to distance yourself emotionally to have come at this objectively. Again, is this Steven Spielberg offering you an opportunity? Is it your local TV station offering you a work-to-hire real internship where you could get some real work out of it? Okay, that might actually be the legit opportunity that it's time to eat some humble pie. But if it's some guy who hired you off a casting website or a crew site who's giving you the big pitch about what a big name he is, and when you pull up his name, you haven't heard of him, Exercise some healthy skepticism. Also, yeah. uh, also another a good rule of thumb, the powerful people do not tell you they're powerful. Anybody who needs to brag about it doesn't actually have the ability to help you. Very good advice. And that translates into the author and publishing world as well. Um, yeah. be, just because, Just because they say, hey, I've published so many books for so many people. What's the quality of the books they've been publishing just out of curiosity? Yeah, I mean, you have to, mm -hmm. yeah. Common sense sometimes needs to just rain a little harder. It can be hard though as an artist though to have that common sense when you haven't had work in six months and the yeah. guy's giving you the big pitch about how this film is really big and he wants to give you a good job. It can be really hard to parse those feelings out. Oh, definitely, because we're human and and we want to be wanted. And it sounds like, oh, I'm being wanted. And so, yeah, you definitely sometimes, though, for your own sake and your own mental health and emotional stability, you got to take a step back and be like, but do I want that person to want me? Do I really? Also, another also another great rule of thumb. If someone's begging you for free work, do they actually have the power to get you what you want down the road if they're having to beg you for free work? Mm. I can just exercise some skepticism is all I'm saying. Absolutely. No, that's, that's healthy. That's good. And that's true in your real life relationships too, <laughs> just to throw yeah. that out there. <laughs> oh yeah. Also romantically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Always be a little skeptical. Just sounds too good to be true. That's, exactly. that's your life advice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Stimson and Jen, we're going on the road. We're going to make sure everyone knows skepticism is healthy. It's mm, oh, my absolute yeah. favorite podcast. No offense. Skeptoid with Brian Dunning. <laughs> Yeah, you know like, <laughs> I have actually it came across I was scrolling through I mean this was months ago and I was like oh that's like so me but anyway it's fantastic to everybody listening go check out Skeptoid if you haven't already there it's great <laughs> oh that's awesome I don't I've never plugged another podcast on my podcast but by all means no <laughs> absolutely don't worry, we're totally edit different that part out. <laughs> no we're totally different podcasts it's totally cool <laughs> We're very different. So we have covered a lot of ground this evening. What else is there? What what else do you want to talk about? I don't know. I feel like I feel like we've hit kind of the big points. I mean, at this point, it's really just making shout outs to other stuff I like, <laughs> but have no, but have no direct involvement in. I'm good with that. I mean, how crazy is it? They're telling us that aliens are real. I mean, I'm kind of here for it. Okay, just saying. really big caveat on that. That's been driving me nuts. <laughs> No one has said aliens are real. They have said that there's programs to uh, get unidentified flying objects. And if you dig into the, what they're saying, what they mean is other test projects from other things. And it's, no, one of those right. things where, <laughs> it's one of the things where to me, I'm always kind of amazed this is a revelation. Like, of course, there's a thing to grab enemy combatants technology. Like, isn't that exactly the sort of thing 
like even in a non-conspiracy setting, isn't that what you want your government to be doing? Making sure that it's getting the best available. Like, how is that? How is that shocking? I, I I want to believe that even though they're probably getting bullied and laughed at by the other secret by the other secret forces, that there's also something in place for actual aliens. I do hope there is actually right. a procedure in place for that, and they're not just going to go. Oh. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> the truth is out there. I'm yeah, just oh, saying. exactly love that show. But yeah, anytime people are shocked, <laughs> these programs exist. It's like, well, wouldn't you want like if you had the power to set up stuff? Wouldn't you want to have that? In I don't want to get caught with my pants down by the little green men, even if it's completely <laughs> unlikely. I hope there bloody well better be a plan in place for that. Oh, absolutely. I agree. Um, I just think it's really funny that we were on a sci-fi kick this evening and and with all of your work. And then I was like, I'm totally bringing up aliens because you just never know. So tell the listeners how they can connect with you, where they can find your work, when your work is going to be on the big screen for all of us to see. Well, the best ways to connect with me are on threads, Stimson and Sneed. I'm the only one out there. And on Instagram, also Stimson and Sneed. Only one out there. Ver also, to all the parents out there who want your kids to be an artist, give them a weird name. We have to copyright our own names as artists constantly. It it has saved me so much trouble. I love it. That's a, that's a great advice um, because it sure beats getting a stage name and then having to remember who you are. I mean, exactly. <laughs> Plus, every time I get a new video game account, I'm like the only guy who just uses his own name. <laughs> and everyone thinks that's made up. It can't be real. Yeah, I don't have to go with like uh, Fist Action 5. It's just stems with. That's it. That's all it is. I love mm -hmm. it. No, that's great. <laughs> well, thank you so much for hanging out with me this evening. It's been a wild ride for sure. <laughs> it has been wildly fun for me as well. And if you don't have fun doing what you love, then do you really love it? But exactly. That's one. It goes back to what I was talking about, how dynamic the act of making film is. Even if I'm making a terrible film, I've never not enjoyed the process of making it because it is just so wild. And the fun thing, especially with crews who have been around the block a few times, we all kind of know when we're making a terrible film. And that attitude actually lets everybody else cut loose and have a little bit of fun with it. But trust me, we, we can all read the scripts like we know when this isn't good what we're making <laughs> but you're having fun making it so funny. yeah absolutely mm, awesome well I hope whatever happens next for you is just huge I I cannot wait like just to, I know your name is going to be out there and it's going to be big I'm going to claim that it all started right here um just because I can since we're shouting out other people's podcasts here um, hey, I'm just going to take credit me on, anybody who comes and follows me on thread give all the credit to Jennifer that's right. I, <laughs> I'm taking all the credit for your success from here on out. So thank you so much for hanging out with me. Um, I was here from the beginning. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, th that's the official line and I'm going to back it up. <laughs> Perfect. Authors, if you are looking for resources to help you write better stories and more relatable characters, visit my website, jcarwrites.com slash authors.